This morning's reading is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Last warning today. We will finish up uh, the Sermon on the Mount next week as we look at the last couple verses that deal with the authority of Christ. Um, And then, by His grace, we will enter into a study on the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. So we'll start that in a couple weeks, Lord willing. Um, But today we're going to go back and we're going to look at this parable, this ending that we started last week. And if you were here and you, or you were listening to Eric read the passage, um, you know, in the parable we have two men, we have two houses, we have two foundations, and we have one storm. And we have radically different endings for those two houses. And we looked last week at the men and we looked at the houses they built, the lives they lived. And this Sunday morning we're going to look specifically at um, his words. Uh, the, the foundation itself, when we talk about the rock and the sand, um, Christ delineates that clearly, not only in this passage, but throughout Scripture. And then we're going to look at the storm. Um, and my prayer has been this week that you will hear Christ and the magnitude of the storm, uh, and you'll respond correctly to it. There's a right response to it, and there's a wrong response to it. And so my prayer this week has been that you would respond correctly. And so let's look again at this parable and look at the foundations, rock and sand, and then look at the purpose. Why he says build your house on the rock, and that is to withstand the storm so that we will enjoy the presence of God both now and forever. And let's do this by looking at three things this morning. One, building on a firm foundation. What does that mean? Two, withstanding the perfect storm. And number three, finding shelter in him. Building on a firm foundation, withstanding the perfect storm, and finding a shelter in him. So number one, um, when, we, when you read through this sermon and you get to this last parable, it's, on the surface, the parable, is, it makes sense. It's easy to read. You say, all right, if, if you build your foundation on something solid when the storm comes, then your life, your house won't be blown away. But if you don't build on something solid, if you're like the foolish man here who builds his house wherever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants, then when that storm comes, and it will come, then that house will be destroyed. It will be decimated. Um, I, don't, I don't think anybody reads that and says, I want to be the foolish man. I imagine anybody who reads it or hears it and takes it seriously says, I want to be the wise man. I want to be the wise woman. I want to build my house on the rock so that when that storm comes, it won't be torn to pieces. Now, in order to be wise and build your life on this firm foundation, you need to know how to build, or more specifically, where to build. And then you must do it. This is... There are parables that Christ taught and the disciples didn't get. And he says, don't you get this? This is not one that's hard to understand. 
the understanding's plain, the doing becomes difficult. In Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, God, speaking of Jesus, said, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. Christ himself, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, said to Peter, I tell you that on this rock, on this Petra, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament, with, from the mouth of Christ himself, identify the rock as Christ. Way before Dwayne Johnson. For those of you who think of rock contemporarily, Christ is the rock. He always has been the rock. Well, I said it and some of the kids go, wait a minute. I thought, no, no, it's Jesus. And the, the teaching on that is simple too. He's saying your life must be built on the person of Christ, on the work of Christ, on who Jesus is, what he taught, the life he lived, the death he died, the resurrection from the dead, on Christ. And, and we certainly can understand that teaching of Christ being the rock, the person of Christ being the rock. But Christ, you say, well, what does that mean? How do I build my life on Christ? Jesus takes in this parable and he gives us more detail. In fact, in the context of the the parable, Jesus Christ doesn't represent the rock himself. Look what it says in verse 24. Jesus said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. In other words, the hearing of the words of Christ and the doing of the words of Christ is the building upon the rock. It becomes the foundation, right? The converse also being true. Those in the parable who heard but did not do, those who heard but did not put into practice the words of Christ, were building their house on the sand. So the rock is hearing and doing, and the sand is hearing and not doing. He's talking, of course, as we know, to the visible church. To all those who are listening to him. To all those who profess his name. He's talking throughout the centuries to all those who gather on Sunday mornings and they sing and they pray and they say amen. And he's making a clear distinction, a division. And it's, it's sharp. And there's no middle. And that distinction, the division he's making is between those who profess Christ but do not know him, and those who profess Christ and do know him. And that distinction, according to this parable, is simple. He's saying, those who know me, those who are really saved, they will hear me and they will obey. And he says, those who come in, they profess my name, and they get baptized, and they carry their big old Bibles with their inscription on the front, but they do not listen to what I say, and then they do not obey what I say, they are not of me. And so the distinction is so clear, but we hate it because he's saying... You got to listen and obey if you say you belong to me. If you merely hear what I have to say and then walk out these doors and do not do it, you're not of me. You're the man building his house on the sand. Now, before we continue, that teaching can really screw people up if we don't put it in the context of the gospel. Because you'll hear me say, oh, I got it. If I hear what he says and I do what he says, then I can make myself a Christian. I can become saved. I can make myself saved. That's not what he's saying at all. Or you might say, if I just hear and obey some. If you've been with us during this time on the Sermon on the Mount, you, 
if there's anything, we have heard this teaching and we thought to ourselves, this is not realistic. This is not possible. It's not possible to hear what Christ has to say and do what he has to say on your own. Impossible. Some of us might hear this teaching and think that he's calling us to an immediate life of sinless perfection. Where you say to yourself, if I hear and do exactly what he says perfectly all the time, then I am saved. I am being obedient. And if I hear and sometimes I slip up, then I am unsaved. I am building on the sand. That's not what he's saying either. There will be no sinless perfection until Christ comes again in glory or until he brings you home. There will be no sinless perfection. That's why the Apostle John said in 1 John 1, 8, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So what is he saying? If he's not calling for sinless perfection, if he's not saying that you can save yourself, what is he saying here? Why is he telling us this? What distinction is he making between those who hear and do and those who hear and do not do? He's distinguishing between real faith and a said faith. Real, life-saving faith is the distinction he's making. Hearing and doing, understanding and obeying. I mean, this is, this is a fundamental teaching throughout all of Scripture. James highlights it. Remember, he says, faith without works, hearing but not doing, understanding but disobeying, saying you believe but living contrary to the teachings of Jesus. He says, that's a dead faith. It's not a real faith. It may look good on the outside, and you may convince a lot of people, but he says, my Father knows that faith is not a saving faith. Real faith, which is the distinction that Christ is making between those in the church who know him and those in the church who do not, those in the church who are building their life on the rock and those who are building the sand. He says real faith is hearing and obeying out of the power of the gospel of grace. Because you love me. Because I loved you. In other words, a saving faith will always, always, always result in the transformation of the life of the one who professes the faith. You'll be changed. You will minister and you will love. You will engage in the kingdom life that Christ has so clearly delineated in chapters 5 and 6 in the first part of 7. As a member of this body and this pastor over the past 10 years, I've had people who I think I'm close with say to me very gracious things. I've had some say to me, if there's anything I can do to serve you and to minister to you, just let me know. And those are, and those are wonderful words to hear when some, a brother or sister says, listen, you know, how can I pray for you? How can I minister to your family? I, that, that's such encouraging words for a pastor. And, and there have been brothers and sisters here who have expressed that love and they've been so faithful. Faithful to a degree that it's, it's almost, uh, it's impossible for me to express to you the gratitude and the joy that um, has blessed my life from people saying they love me as a brother and ministered and served and loved me in that capacity. But there have also been several people who have overtly declared our love relationship, you know, a, a proximity to me. That I have been in a time of need and I've asked them for help. I've asked them for service that I needed and it was, no, I'm not going to do it. There was one particular individual here for quite a while um, that was a gifted teacher. And um, with the exception of one occasion, I would ask him to take you know, the Monday-Sunday 
the Monday Sunday, the morning Sunday Bible study. And uh, it was always, no, no, no time, can't, sorry. Well, one time I had surgery. I mean, I was, I was unable. And there was no one else. And I said, can you? He said, I'd love to, but I can't. And I'm like, why? He said, I just, I just can't make the time. Now, this person can say that we are close and we're friends and he's, I'm a brother in Christ and he loves me. But, but that love is expressed through service. Love is expressed through obedience. Love is expressed, if we say we love God and refuse to serve him by hearing his word and obeying, then the whole thing's a sham. The whole thing's a lie. We're hypocrites. This final warning then of hearing Jesus' teaching and doing them, of building our house on the rock rather than the sand, it's so fitting. It's a fitting end to the sermon where Christ, with authority, says, these are my words. I mean, throughout the entire sermon, especially in chapter 5, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. You've heard that it was said, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be in the dangers of the fires of hell. Have you heard that, and are you submitting to it? Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Have you heard Christ say that? These are his words. You have heard that it was said, do not break your oath, but keep your oaths that you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. You have heard that it was said, love your enemy and love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your father in heaven. These are his words. He said, you've heard this, but I'm telling you this. Are we hearing that? And more importantly, in the context of the parable, are we submitting to it? Are we obeying it? Or did I just read these two and you went, yeah, 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 I know it. Move on. Did you hear these words blandly? Did you hear these words repetitiously? Or did you hear Jesus saying, I'm saying this to you, and I love you, now submit. Jesus Christ, we know from this sermon, fulfilled the law and the prophets, and therefore he rightly claims authority to speak these truths. And therefore he says to us, hear my words and be wise. Hear my words and build your whole life on what I say. If everything else has confused you, he says, just listen to me and submit. Build your life on the rock. And when the storm comes, you won't be torn to pieces. Hearing, understanding, and doing is the life built upon the rock. Hearing and understanding and not doing is the house built upon the stand. And when that storm comes, the crash will be great. So what about this storm? We know what the rock is, hearing and doing. What is this storm? Let's look at it. In our parable, Jesus talks of the storm. We have rain, we have floodwaters, we have mighty winds, right? We have a fantastic storm. Now, for those of you who know your Bible well, storms... Uh, God uses them symbolic for judgment. 
right? His wrath is expressed through storms. People inside and outside the church know the story of Noah. I mean, God was so thoroughly displeased and disgusted with mankind that what did he do? He brought a storm. What kind of storm? It flooded the whole earth, right? That's a big storm. Ezekiel chapter 13, when dealing with Israel's false prophets, God said to the prophet Ezekiel, Because they lead my people astray, saying, Peace, where there is no peace, rain will come in torrents, I will send hailstones hurtling down, and violent winds will burst forth. It's an indication of judgment. It's a physical expression that God is judging. In fact, the end times, I mean, that context I think is most clear when these storms come. And we see it painted in picture form in the book of Revelation and Ezekiel. And we'll see it painted in picture form in Zechariah when we get there as well. Christ here in Matthew chapter 7, he's dealing with final judgment storms. I mean, we go back to the broad path. How does it end? It ends in destruction. Apalia. That means total, complete ruin. The trees, the one that doesn't bear good fruit is what? It's cut down and thrown where? Into the fire. The consequence of not really knowing Christ. Being cast out into the outer darkness. And here, the ultimate end for hearing but not putting Jesus' words into practice. Falling and great will be its fall. Literally, it's megatosis. Exceedingly great. It's like that word in the Greek saying, it's beyond our imagination how great this fall is. Now, some might hear this and say, as someone did in the church last week. What is Jesus trying to do? Scare us? Yes. Yes! This doesn't make any sense. This is not how I understand the Bible. This is not how I understand my God. He is trying to scare you. Not by conjuring up myths and legends of this doomsday that's to come. He's trying to speak the truth. And by us hearing the truth, if we hear it correctly... If we hear it as he's teaching that one day every man, woman, and child born of Adam will stand before a thrice holy God and God who is holy will look upon that man, woman, or child and ask them to give an account of their life. This is what he's saying. And on that day, unless you stand before a holy God in sinless perfection, without one moment or one thought or one word or one action in your entire life, being completely submitted to God, bringing Him honor and glory. If you do not stand in front of Him in sinless perfection without any fault, without any flaw, then you will experience a megatosis, a great crash. Hebrews 10 tells us that God said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge His people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Dreadful! Jesus is graciously and lovingly revealing truth. He doesn't have to make up a story. The truth is catastrophic. The truth is overwhelming. That God is holy and we are not. And that we will be called before him to give an account for our building. Here's the house. This is what we built. It's a truth we dismiss today even in the church. We dismiss it as foolishness. We dismiss it as an older teaching in a bygone day when they preached fire and brimstone and it was all so scary. And we dismiss that as though it no longer is truthful. And so now we talk about a happier God. You know, God was in a bad mood in the Old Testament and now he's in a good mood in the New Testament. We talk about a more loving God through Jesus. 
And we vacate that day. And we vacate the judgment. Or worse yet, we recognize the truth. Holy God, sinful man, the great storm to come. And we, we don't think it's really real. We, we believe it. I mean, most of you say, yeah, yeah, I believe it. But we don't really believe it. We say we do, but it's not, it's not terrifying. It's certainly not scary. It's no big deal. Why? Jesus, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. Jesus teaches this truth plainly so that we will believe that that day is real, that that storm is coming and be scared. But not scared to death. He wants us to be scared to life, right? He wants us to be scared to salvation. He's saying, if you have any sense about you at all, if this is true, you should be terrified, utterly catatonic in fear, if this is true. And he wants that fear to compel you to be saved, to move you to safety. Is he trying to scare us? Absolutely. If on October 29th you were on Staten Island in New York and you actually believed what the Weather Channel was saying, I mean, you're a weather fanatic and you're listening to the Weather Channel and they're talking about this perfect storm that's coming with 14 feet surges they are going to make their way onto shore. And you believe all this. And on October 29th, before the storm hits, you decide to go to all your neighbors in Staten Island and you knock on their door and you say, listen, there's a storm coming. Run. Get to higher ground. How would they respond? How did people respond? Because people went out and they said that. How did some, some respond and they said, this looks bad. And they took the counsel of the authorities and they listened and they fled to higher ground. And many of their homes were utterly destroyed, wiped off the foundation, but they survived. Many others, one of the reasons the death toll was so high, it wasn't that they weren't warned. They were warned, and they said, you know what? We're not going to heed the counsel. They said foolish things, some that were written for those who did survive. I've been here all my life, in this house all my life, and I've survived many storms bigger than this. The storm of which Jesus is speaking is the biggest storm to ever come. Others said every time they've come in the past telling us to leave, it has been a false alarm. I'm not leaving. Some filled with pride. I was born in this house and I'm going to die in this house. And they died. I'm going to stay. Now, if you were to go and you were to knock on these houses and you were to tell them to flee, they're not, I don't imagine anybody would say to you, oh, you wicked soul trying to scare me to salvation. Are you trying to scare me out of my house? That wouldn't be the response. The response would be, I don't believe you. I'm staying, or I believe you, and I'm leaving. I doubt anyone would say, what are you trying to do? Scare me into salvation? (laughs) But I'm telling you right now, I would love to scare you into salvation. I would. I would love to scare you out of your house this morning. Out of your complacency, out of your false sense of security. I would love to scare you out of your arrogance and pride and short-sightedness. I would love to scare you out of your laziness and the lies that still captivate you. I would love for you to be terrified by this storm. To hear the warnings of this perfect storm. 
that Jesus is talking about. This morning, if you believe that when it hits, when it makes landfall, it will make Sandy look like a morning dew. If you believe that when this storm comes, it will destroy everything and everyone that is not built upon the rock of Christ. If you were to believe this parable this morning and be utterly terrified, and in your state of terror, you would flee to higher ground. You would repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ. If you were to believe that this storm is real and that you will be caught in it, and the only way not to be utterly destroyed is to put your hope and your faith in Christ, to listen to what he has to say and to obey. If you were to do all of this, then I would not care if you think I'm crazy. And I wouldn't care if you say this preaching is ridiculous because you'd be safe. You'd be saved. Jesus was not concerned about what they thought. He was not concerned about his external perception to those listening that day or those who have listened to this parable throughout the centuries. He was not interested in gaining their glory, tickling their ears. He spoke the truth to them. The plain, simple, but very difficult truth. Why? Because he was concerned about our ultimate safety. He was concerned about our our eternal well-being. Did the people think that he was crazy? So much so, they said he is possessed by a demon. Did they think that his speech was extreme and inflammatory? So much so that in Matthew chapter 12, his own mother and brothers came to get him and bring him home and silence him, saying, you're talking crazy. Was it irritating? Did did what he had to say irritate them? Did it make him angry? Did it make the people angry? So much so they killed him. They murdered him. They didn't receive this well. They didn't say, what a joyful teaching. How easy on our ears. And why did he do it? Why would anyone share a message that would arouse so much irritation, so much anger, so much anxiety, and so much fear that it would lead to their own murder. Why would anybody in their right mind do that? Because it's real. That's the only explanation. Christ would never have taught this if it were not real. And if it is real, then, and we hear his words properly, terror and horror and being frightened is the right response initially. Either hell is real. What Jesus is saying is true. And to not hear that the storm is coming and you will be in it. Both houses in the parable are in the storm. Both houses will be judged, but only one will stand. If hell is real and the storm is real and Jesus is teaching this for anyone to hear it and reject it or to hear Christ and not obey and submit it's the, it's the ultimate height of stupidity and foolishness there's, there's no greater foolishness that we can engage in than to hear the storm and say you know what I've been here all my life and it hasn't come I've lived in this house all my life. I've survived many a storm and I haven't been destroyed. The pinnacle of stupidity. If hell's not real and the storm's not real, then I don't know what we're doing here. I mean, I really don't. Because we've got to toss out Christ and all his teachings and all in his sermon. I mean, 
the Sermon on the Mount then becomes an absolute pedantic lie, grotesque, because he's speaking truth, so he says. And if hell's not real and the storm's not real, if there's no perfect storm to come, no wrath of God, then the best we can say is that Christ was crazy, a liar. His own mouth, from his own mouth, in the New Testament, he talks of hell twice as much as he talks about heaven. Why? Why would he do that? Because we don't believe it. Why would he do that? We don't want to believe it. I mean, we don't want to believe it. We love talk more about heaven. Talk more about the mansion. Talk more about talk more about that. The angelic host. But hell, we go, la 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 la, stop it, Pastor. Keep talking. Twice as much of, about heaven, Christ talked about hell. And the description, I mean, he uses extreme metaphors to try to give us even a glimpse. But even the metaphors are just a glimpse because they don't compare to the reality of hell. Place of torment. The one that causes chills in me deepest, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. A place where the worm will not die, described as outer darkness, where there is burning and torment, isolation, rejection, a bottomless pit filled with sorrows, where there is no rest, burning thirst and hunger. For how long? Forever and ever and ever. And that's the point that always gets me and always has gotten me. It never ends. Now, anybody can go through anything for a period of time. All, many of you have endured suffering. Nothing like hell, but you've endured suffering here. And that when you say, if I can just get through this month or this year, or the, and then it ends. But this never ends. It's the worm that never dies. It's forever and ever and ever. And that, that causes my brain to stop. Eternal suffering. Eternal torment. And I think it's one of the reasons we reject it. It just sounds too bad. It's too bad. It's too overwhelming. And yet, this is exactly how Jesus ends his sermon. This is how he ends it. Everyone, without exception, who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain will fall, the floods come, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was that fall. How great? It fell all the way to hell. It fell all the way to hell. That's how great the fall was. It just didn't land on the sand and break it. It fell all the way to hell. So why here? Why end a sermon like this, like this? I mean, did Jesus not, did he flunk out of seminary? Did, did he not take homiletics or how to preach a contemporary uh, sermon? Because this is not how we end sermons this day. I mean, we end sermons with a joke. We start sermons with a joke and we end sermons with a joke. So people leave laughing because we want them to laugh. Or we end it with... A story that makes people cry. That's always good. A great sermon today, Pastor. Why, wow, you brought me to tears. Great story. Or we end it with the ten ways to be your best self now. Jesus would not stoop to such manipulating tactics. He spoke the truth. He ended his sermon exactly where he wanted it to be. He ended the sermon because that's exactly where he wants us to be. 
He wants us to hear this high kingdom calling of life. And he wants us to hear this radical destruction of not hearing and not obeying. He doesn't want any noise to convolute the clarity of this message. Nor do I. He wants us to be at that place where, as James said, submit yourselves to God and resist the devil. He wants us to be at that place where we hear James say, come near to God and he will come near to you. A place where you will wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. He'll say, today, you do that. A place where the Holy Spirit tells us to grieve, mourn, and wail. To change our laughter to mourning and our joy to gloom. A place where we should humble ourselves before God and he will lift us up. That's where he wants us. He doesn't want you reading Matthew 5, 6, and 7 going, best sermon I ever heard preached. Really moved me. He would hate that response. He wants you to read it and be cut to the core to hear about this kingdom calling and this judgment to come and the storm that you will face and bow down and beg for forgiveness and seek forgiveness and repent, not laugh, but wail. Right response to cry out for mercy. Right response to believe with all your heart and mind that storm is real and it's coming no matter what people say otherwise. No matter how they try to twist God or Christ or the cross into something so nice and neat and we can package it and we can wrap it and we can put a bow on it and stick it under a Christmas tree. That's not the gospel message. The gospel message is that there's a storm and it is beyond your comprehension and it's coming and it's coming quickly. Are you ready? Are you building properly? Are you so foolish to build your house in the sand and see utter destruction come to you in your life? How do we find shelter in him? If this is where he wants us to end the sermon, if this is where he wants us to be with this crescendo of judgments, paths ending in life or destruction, trees bearing fruit or being cast and thrown into the fire, true believers enjoying the presence of God forever or being cast out of his presence, houses surviving the storm or suffering total destruction. All these warnings are intended to reveal two Specific eternal biblical truths. Number one, there are only two ways to live your life. Only two. You are either going to live your life knowing God, hearing Him, submitting to Him, building your house on that rock, or you're going to build your house in the sand. It's one of the two. I know this is counterculture. I know. What? Does Christ teach that isn't? I know that we say there are many paths that lead to God. That's garbage. It's a lie. I know within the church, we grant great leeway for those we desperately want to believe no Christ. And we let them roam out and build on the sand. I know we do that. But it doesn't mean that there's another option. Two lives. Rock, sand. Two destinies. Heaven or hell. And that's it. That's one truth that we should get from this. The other is that the life you lived, the life you lived, the house that you built is characterized by loving obedience or willful disobedience. Right? The primary distinction that Jesus is saying between the house built upon the rock and the house built upon the sand is obedience. Loving obedience as a, as a result of the gospel in your life or willful, rebellious disobedience. 
one of the two. Two lives, two ends, two eternities, all separated by obedience. I can see some of you are already disengaging. I get it. I do. I get it. I get why this is so hard. But by the power of God and his grace, don't disengage. Hear Christ. Hear him. Now, we need to pull the lens back a bit. I mean, we're, we're microscopic. Matthew 7, right? 24, 25, 26, 27. But this sermon was taught in the context of the gospel message given by Matthew. When Matthew started his gospel testimony, do you remember how he started? Do you remember how he started? These verses on judgment need to put, be put in the proper gospel context. The whole message. Otherwise, you'll leave here going, so depressing. So depressing. No. Matthew chapter 1. Mary was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit, not by her husband. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. You're to call him Jesus. Yahshua. Yeshua. Why? What does that mean? The Lord saves. Salvation is from the Lord. And so Matthew starts his gospel testimony by revealing Jesus as the Savior, not the scary storyteller. Not the man of doom. He starts with Christ as Savior, and therefore Jesus comes in, and in the context of Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the one they have been waiting to come to deliver from their sins, in that context, the judgment makes great sense, and there's great hope in it. Why? There's a Savior. The storyline has a Savior. It it doesn't end in verse 27 with destruction. It will for some, but only those who reject the Savior. The Sermon on the Mount, the climax, the the, the cataclysmic climax in Matthew 7 was not intended to push you, any man or woman, to despair or discouragement. If it has, you're not hearing it properly. Terrified, yes. Discouraged, no. Terror is the right response. But what you do with that will determine everything. It was not given these judgments to encourage a pharisaical form of self-salvation. Jesus said, do, I'm going to do. He said, hear and do, I'm going to hear and do, and if I do, then I'll save myself. No, wasn't teaching that. Instead, the entire sermon, the high calling of kingdom life, where he said, you are to be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. This, This Matthew 7 ending of destruction and fire and being cast out and destruction of the house... It was all intended and is intended for you to hear and be pushed to Christ, to be pressed to Christ, to flee to Christ, to run to Christ. He's coming and knocking on your door and you say, there's a storm coming. Flee to me. Flee to the rock. Build your house on me. 
And then when the storm comes and the rain comes down and the waters rise and the wind blows, I will make sure that you stand. The warning is an ultimate encouragement. And what Christ is doing, I love it. He's stripping away all the noise and all the confusion and all that garbage that commingles our faith. And he makes it just so clear. And he says, listen, God is holy. You're a sinner. The judgment is coming. The storm is terrible. Flee to me. Flee to me. He says, don't walk. Run with all your might to me. And I'll save you. This is the context in which we get these judgments. Savior, Jesus, the Messiah, has come to save us from our sin. I'm so thankful that this is in the right context because I don't know how you hear this without being greatly discouraged or depressed or despondent or suicidal. If it's true and there's no Savior. But that's not the gospel narrative. The Bible says there is a Savior and it is Christ himself. And in the context of the parable, Jesus Christ says, listen, I'm going to save you. And this is how I'm going to do it. I came and I built my entire life on a rock. I lived my life complete. We looked at this last week, complete moral perfection. Not one moment did I think, speak, or act outside of my father's will. I brought him complete and total glory with my entire life. My house was the perfect house built on the perfect rock. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the wrath of you because you built your house on the sand. Every single last one of us. Not one of us started by building our house on the rock. Every single person started building in the sand, not hearing God, not obeying God, rebelling against God. And so God, Christ came, he says, I'm going to live the life and build my house on the rock so that I can take the punishment that you rightly deserve. And he did. When Christ went to the cross, full wind of God, full rain of God, full flood of God, And what was the impact? It washed him away. It utterly destroyed him. We're going to get a chance to to remember his broken body and his spilled blood. It destroyed him physically. It destroyed him spiritually. And how great was his fall as we end this passage? How great was his fall? He went to the very pit of hell. He experienced all that, all that we rightly deserved. Why? Why? You know why. You know why. So that he could give to you the sinless perfection that you need to withstand the perfect storm. So that he could give to you his righteousness so that on that day when God looks at you, he will see pure holiness and the judgment will pass right over. It'll pass right over you because it was thrust upon Christ. God's wrath is satisfied and therefore, is able, he's able to offer us hope through Christ. A restored relationship out of the grace that flows from the cross. For those who listen to Jesus' words and obey. For those who follow him. Some of you, I imagine, are still saying, but how do I know that I'm building on the rock? I mean, how do I know? I heard what you said, and I, I don't like it, but how do I know? I want you to have assurance of your salvation. So does Christ. That's why he gave us the parable. Let's look back at the verse again. 
Verse 24, Jesus said, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. You say, I want to be the wise man. I want to be the wise woman. I want to build my house on the rock. I don't want to build it on the sand. How do I know I'm on the rock? Jesus said, The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. When the gospel of grace... The magnitude of the sacrifice made by Christ makes its way in. And you see that there's hope and salvation in Christ. And it gets into your heart. I mean, really starts to permeate and make its way through you. And begin to settle and then move in you. Then you will. You'll begin to hear the word of God differently. His words. His teachings. You will hear this Sermon on the Mount differently. You'll begin to understand what is being said. I mean, just, just two weeks ago, a man said to me, I read the Bible, I don't understand it. What did Paul say? The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're spiritually discerned, right? But when you come to a saving grace and the gospel gets in deep, then you begin to understand what the Bible says. You'll understand what I'm saying. You'll understand what the Bible teacher's saying. And you won't just understand it. You'll begin to love it. You'll begin to desire it. And not only that, you'll understand desire and you'll what? You'll begin to obey. You'll begin to submit joyfully. You'll say, I want my life aligned with this. As hard as it is. That means that the heart born again by the Spirit of Christ will stop rejecting the whole counsel of God. You want to know that you're building your house on the sand or the rock? Ask yourself this. Are you taking the whole counsel of God? If you are, good indication that you're building your house on the the rock. If you pick and choose what you like, you're very likely on the sand. The whole counsel of God. The foolish builder rejects the whole counsel. The foolish builder says, I like these passages and these verses. I'm going to hold on to them. I'm going to build my life on those. But these, those ones that talk about sin, accountability, confession, turning, my... My, my struggles with lust, my struggles with lying, my struggles with cheating, my struggles with adultery, my struggles with my, my employer. These, no, I'm going to move those aside. Fame, most famous verse in the American culture, what is it? What's the most famous verse in our culture? John 3.16. Why is that? You ever wonder why? I love the verse in context. Why John 3.16? Why is it every time they're going to kick the extra point, you see it right between the uprights? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that whoever... For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Out of context. People hear that and they say, God loves everyone. God's going to save everyone. Just have some belief in that guy Jesus and and you're in. It does not surprise me that John chapter 3 verses 18 and 19 are not raised up between the uprights. When Jesus continues, said, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved the darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Hmm. Maybe we should put up that one. That's much clearer to me. That's not a universal salvation. That's not a false message. 
those building their house on the sand will pick and choose the parts of the Bible they like and they'll discard those they don't like. They will ignore, or worse yet, they'll refute and they'll argue against the word of God. They'll argue against God's own word, trying to finagle their way out. But the new heart in Christ, here's a test. The new heart in Christ, the heart that's been born again by the spirit of God, will see the whole Bible as God's word. You'll read 2 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul said, All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that, listen to this, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What good work? The building of your house. Of course. Your life. Every good work. Your whole life. The whole Bible. If you pick and choose, you obey some things, you disobey others. Likely you're building on the sand and not the rock. Another way to know where you're building your house is just your general disposition toward the Bible, toward his word. I mean, what is it? Over the past several weeks in going through the Sermon on the Mount, have you been irritated at what Jesus has said? I mean, these are just hard. Has it made you angry that the calling is so high? Have you been impatient Maybe impatient with me, saying, go faster, please. Maybe impatient with him, as he continues to step by step bring light into this darkness. Do you find yourself, ask yourself this, do you find yourself arguing and defending your life against Scripture? Do you find yourself justifying lifestyles, sins, and thoughts when you read them clearly in Scripture and know that you should be repenting instead? Do you find yourself in a perpetual excuse mode? I know but. I know but. Parents hate that with their children. I don't know what parents... I love that. I know but. I know but. I know but. No, I know but. I know. Now do. I know but I'm old. I know but I'm tired. I know, I know, I know, but I'm too busy. I know but it's not my fault. That's one of my favorites. I know but he made me do it. I know next week... I know, I know, next year, I know. Favorite evangelical one, ready? I know, but I'm searching for God's will. The man or woman building his or her life on the rock will admit and confess his failures rather than defending sin. He or she will desire to be conformed into the image of Christ according to the word. According to the word. If you hate the idea of examining yourself, when Paul said, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith and test yourself, do you not realize that Christ is in you? Of course, unless, of course, you fail the test. Does that irritate you? Does that bother you? Does that make you mad? When you read someone like, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who says we should examine ourselves constantly in light of the word of God. And if we are not reading it in such a way as to be examined by it, we are not reading it correctly. Does that make you angry? Maybe your house is on the sand. The man who builds his house on the rock is not defensive, does not have a defensive posture, is not impatient, is not easily irritated, does not say, yeah, but, does not want to not examine. The the man or woman building their house on the rock will hear God, will understand God, and will obey God out of their love for God. 
hear and obey out of love. Very practically. I mean, let's just let me cut through my own noise. Jesus said, those who hear and put my words into practice will withstand the storm. If you hear and forget, if you hear a sermon or you read scripture and within minutes it's just gone, it's like that seed that falls upon the rocky soil and boom, it's coming, it's, it's taken from you. On the sand. If you hear the word of God, this is the most plain teaching we can get. If you hear the word of God and you understand it and you don't do it, then it's guaranteed you're building on the sand. Fundamentally, do you love his word because you love him? I mean, do you love the word of God because you love God and it's him, his word, his speaking? Can you say that? To Joshua, before the Israelites entered the promised land, God said, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. I want you to listen with all seriousness to these passages. God said, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. Then you'll build your house, your life on the rock. I added the last part. Psalm 19, David said, The ordinance of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, that much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than the honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Psalm 119, with my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. I will not neglect your word. Can you say that earnestly? Right now. Can you earnestly say to God at this moment, this is my posture in life. I will not neglect your word. I will not hear and disobey. Or I will, I'm not going to be the one who doesn't hear at all. These men who were building their houses and their lives in the rock, they were hearing and loving and obeying God's word out of their love for God, for the Savior, and for the cross. When you heard me read those passages, whether it be to Joshua or uh, David or the psalmist, can you identify with them? Simple yes or no questions to be answered. Do you meditate on God's word at all? Are you careful careful to do what it says can you say that the word of the Lord is more precious to you than gold or sweeter than honey can you say that do you rejoice as the psalmist said in following God's statutes and delight in his decrees are you pursuing your love relationship with God through hearing and obeying I know why these passages are not preached on. These are simple yes or no answers. 
These are radical indicators as to whether or not we're building our life on the rock or building upon the sand. And if you just heard those passages and said, I, I don't, I don't even read my Bible, but maybe once a week or 15 minutes, I'm part of the national average. Great concern. If you say, I read it because you told me I had to, but I don't like it. Great concern. If you say, I read it all the time, I understand it perfectly and I don't do much of what it says. Great concern. In Donald Whitney's book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, he writes this. He said, we should all have the passion for reading God's word as the man in this story. Listen closely. Evangelist Robert L. Summer tells of a man in Kansas City who was severely injured in an explosion. His face was badly disfigured and he lost his eyesight as well as both hands. He had just become a Christian when the accident happened and one of his greatest disappointments was that he could no longer read his Bible. That alone should be somewhat convicting for us. Then he heard about a lady in England who read Braille with her lips. Hoping to do the same, he sent for some books on the Bible in Braille. But he discovered that the nerve endings in his lips had been too badly damaged to distinguish the characters. One day, as he brought one of the Braille pages to his lips, his tongue happened to touch a few of the raised characters, and he could feel them. Like a flash, he thought, I can read the Bible using my tongue. At the time that Sumner wrote his book, The Wonder of the Word of God, the man had already read through the Bible four times with his tongue his tongue if you love God you'll love his word and you'll do everything you can to hear it and obey it and whatever excuse you come up with I doubt it compares with this man's struggle he had read it through four times by the time the man wrote the book and yet most evangelical professing Christians have never read through the Bible once with their eyes Jesus said, those who hear my teachings and put my words into practice are like the wise man who builds his house in the rock. But how can you obey what you do not know? And how can you know what you do not read or meditate or understand? How is that possible? By default, we're on the sand. By default. Jesus started this sermon actually in Matthew chapter 4 when he said, man does not live he doesn't build his life. Man does not live on bread alone, and you know this, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every word. In John chapter 1, as many of you know, in verse 14, John says that um, the word became flesh. The word of God, Jesus Christ, became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And, and John says, I beheld the one and only it came from the Father, the one who was full of grace and truth. And Jesus, it's, his teaching is so utterly profound that he says, take what I've said and do what I've said and have all of my words and all of your practice and all of your doing be founded upon me because he says, I am the word. Right? And the Bible says that he's the word of life. And then his, as, as the best teacher ever, he gives the disciples and he gives to us throughout the centuries a means of remembering that he is the ultimate word, that he is the rock. 
And therefore, what he has to say should resonate deeply with us. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we should understand what it means. And by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace he gives us through the cross, we should submit and do what it says. And with that, have great assurance. I know Christ doesn't want you leaving here saying, oh, it's hopeless. No, he wants you to see the magnitude of the calling, the kingdom life that you have been called into, the judgment that is to come. And he wants you to hear clearly and then follow him. And he says, start at my table. One of the worst things you could do is hear this teaching and bypass Christ because you cannot hear and you cannot do apart from him. All the hearing and all the doing must be in him. In him. And so he gives us this ordinance. We call it an ordinance. It's a nice church term. He gives us a way of remembering that he is the word by giving us bread that represents his flesh, his broken body, and juice that represents his blood, the blood that was spilled to save us. By God's grace, you will have heard our Lord speak clearly to you. Not my words, but his. You will see the sermon culminating in a radical, cataclysmic ending. And you will be terrified. And in your terror, and in your horror, and in your state of anxiety and fear, you will run one place and one direction only, and that's to Christ. Not walk, but run. And that you will take your hands and grasp the Savior and hold on to him with all your might. By God's grace, if you haven't already, that today will be a new day for you. When you take that word and you read it, meditate on it, and obey it. And you love it. I cannot tell you Someone cannot describe to you what the psalmist says. You must taste for yourself. You must know yourself how good and how beautiful God's words are. If you struggle with how to read, when to read, I can share that with you, but you must do. And once you start... And once you begin to see God revealed to you through the sacred scriptures, and once you begin to read and meditate, people are going to have to say, stop reading so much. What a great problem. Are you reading your Bible again? Yes, I can't get enough. Why? Because it's Him. It's not the Bible, it's Him. Let's pray. Father, I am so thankful that your son was faithful to teach and preach truth. That he was not interested in tickling our ears and he was not interested in winning a popularity contest. He spoke to us things that we did not want to hear. And then, Lord, he sacrificed himself so the Holy Spirit could come and convict us so that we can hear these truths and submit and obey. I pray for my brothers and sisters here and for my brothers and sisters throughout the world that we would hear Christ. We would hear your word. And that by 
the power of the Holy Spirit, we would understand what it is that you're saying, the house that you want us to build, the life that you want us to live. And then by your grace and the power that you give us through the cross, we would live, we would build as you've called us to, as expert builders, building on a firm foundation, on the cornerstone itself. Father, we have failed in this area. Forgive us. We have failed as a church and we failed as a people. Forgive us. But like in the days of old when the entire nation of Israel turned, I pray we would too, that we would turn to you, that we would seek your face, that we would hear your voice, and that we would bow our knee and follow Christ. Do that great work in us, Lord. All to your glory and honor. Do that great work that your name might be lifted up above all names. Do that great work, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.